All right. So we have officially yeah. started recording and we already have 15 participants. I think we should start. Uh, right, so, PM right? or, uh, yeah, almost there now. Yeah. yeah. So in a couple of minutes, we give people time to join in and then at 6 okay. PM we can launch. Uh, okay. So meanwhile, we can continue our informal dis discussion. Ah, okay, been, we, we, mean, we're now online. It's, it's now it's broadcast. Uh, oh, you know. uh, yeah, oh, it is being recorded now. Yeah, and it's, it's being recorded as well. Yes, it's okay. It's okay. So, <laughs> so this 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 uh, seminar is basically about uh, exposing the public to books published in, in India, academic uh, books. Yeah, in general, to in share. India. I mean, in general, it to share the research that is being done by scholars like you and others in US and Europe and Middle East about India, Indic studies, and to share that, those research, all kinds of research with students and scholars in India, especially at Flame University. But it is also open for wider public. So people who whoever can register you know, beforehand can join this webinar. So yeah, it's great fine, to have fine. good strength. We have 44 participants now, pretty good. Uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. It's 6 PM, so uh, yes. Professor, uh, Professor Jan, would you like to begin? Yes. Right. So thank yes, thank you, Professor Theodore uh, Itamar Theodore uh, from Israel, uh, to give us this webinar, your your insights, your research on the Bhagavad Gita. You have written two books. Today's webinar's topic is exploring the Bhagavad Gita philosophy, structure, and meaning. And uh, you are an associate professor of Hindu studies at Zephyr Academic College, Zephyr, Israel, a graduate of the theology faculty, University of Oxford, and a life member of Clare Hall, University of Cambridge. Uh, your publications include Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, Philosophy, Structure, and Meaning that came in 2010, then Brahman and Tao, Comparing Studies in Indian and Chinese Philosophy and Religion that came in 2014, very interesting, very less books on those topics of Indian and Chinese philosophy comparison. Then your third book is The Fifth Veda in Hinduism, Philosophy, Poetry, and Devotion in the Bhagavad Puran, which is called as Pancham Ved. Then the, that came in 2016. And the next book, your, your, yours is Dharma and Halacha, Comparative Studies in Hindu and Jewish Philosophy and Religion, 2018. Very interesting also. And finally, and the Bhagavad Gita, a critical introduction that came just this year, 2021, so hot off the press. Welcome, Professor. And we yeah. all look forward to learning from you. 56 participants. Great, great going. Sir, please begin. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor Pankaj Jain, for your kind invitation. First of all, I would like to just say that my prayers are with all suffering from the COVID in India. We are very much aware of the calamities. And then and, and again, we, we send our prayers uh, and very good wishes to all. Um, I, I, I'm, very, I'm very happy about this invitation and I'm very happy to share some talks, some thoughts uh, on uh, my work. Basically, we are talking about uh, two, uh, two books uh, this is the book which was published here in, in 2021, the Bhagavad Gita Critical Introduction. Uh, it's an edited volume, but we will not talk so much about this book. Rather, my main uh, thrust today is to talk about uh, this book, which is called uh, Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, Philosophy, Structure and Meaning. This was published uh, in the UK and uh, just uh, recently or two years ago, 
there came an Indian edition uh, published by Routledge uh, in uh, Delhi. So this is the book exploring the Bhagavad Gita philosophy, uh, structure, and uh, meaning. So uh, people ask me, what is your uh, innovation in the studies of the Bhagavad Gita? Or how do you uh, perceive of this text? What, what is your point of view? What, what are you trying to say? And I would say before going into the text that uh, I see the Bhagavad Gita as a potentially a philosophy, a world philosophy for the 21st uh, century. And that is perhaps my, uh, my larger uh, claim that the Bhagavad Gita actually has a structure and having a structure, it can serve as a philosophy which can accommodate uh, many cultures and many points of view. It's very flexible, it's very wide. And it also has an ethical system which uh, can further, or which can, I would say, uh, survive post-modernity and, uh, and uh, serve as a foundation for uh, global ethics, actually. Actually, global ethics. So that is, that is my larger uh, argument or a claim or a, perhaps my implicit in my work that I treat the Gita as a major source of uh, philosophy. In many ways, uh, this also happened like 2,500 years ago to Greek philosophy. At first, the Greek philosophy was practiced in religious uh, settings, religious surroundings. Uh, you had people like the Pythagoreans who were living in ashram kind of setting, living together, worshiping the uh, Greek gods, uh, practicing various uh, rites, uh, being vegetarians or vegans, and uh, doing philosophy. And gradually the tradition kind of secularized or universalized their teaching and made them universal <clears throat> and non-religious and uh, applicable. And that's how, I mean, the Western world emerged from this Greco-Roman uh, 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 roots. That's the history of uh, Western, uh, Western uh, uh, philosophy and thought. And similarly, I think that many people see the Bhagavad Gita as a religious text, uh, something which you study from a guru uh, in an ashram setting uh, with religious wisdom, which is fine. It's all true. I'm all for that. But uh, perhaps what I'm doing, I'm trying to articulate uh, the Bhagavad Gita to organize, to, to show its structure, and perhaps take it more to the philosophical, the theological, the universal realm, and present it as a potential philosophy, which I think, uh, for various reasons, uh, may very much suit the 21st uh, century. I actually <clears throat> I published an article about that in an Indian publication a few years ago, uh, arguing that uh, Bhagavad Gita represents Asian philosophy uh, and it's best. And with the rise of Asia in the 21st uh, century, this may well uh, occupy a, a more a prominent uh, a place. But uh, please let me now uh, go a little into, <clears throat> into uh, my own work uh, on the content of the Bhagavad Gita. Let us speak about uh, 
the contents of the Bhagavad Gita, see what are the ingredients in the Bhagavad Gita, and then I try to suggest a kind of a structure or a way of bringing all of them together, uh, which is perhaps at the heart uh, of my work. So now at this point, I, I just ask, uh, I just want to uh, discuss a few of the Bhagavad Gita's contents. So first of all, let us talk about Dharma, which is perhaps the basic uh, layer uh, of the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Dharma, central to Indian thought. Uh, how can we translate Dharma? Dharma, religion, duty, morality, justice, law, and order. All these uh, represent a Dharma, that which sustains Dri, is the root, the Datu, uh, which holds a human society and actually the whole uh, world. Dharma in a larger, in a, in a deeper sense, is also the nature uh, of everything. It aspires to place everything, not only the human being, but the whole uh, world in its proper place. Uh, the Dharma of the teacher is to teach. Dharma of the sun is to shine. Uh, this is the nature, the, the, <clears throat> the essence uh, of every uh, phenomenon. And it aspires to establish human society on a solid uh, moral uh, foundation. Uh, also in terms of uh, ecology, uh, we have to say, uh, echoing Professor uh, Pankaj Jain's uh, work, uh, of course, also uh, ecology. Uh, basic Hindu Dharma speaks about Varna and Ashrama. It divides society into four uh, Varnas and four Ashramas. Uh, you know them, we will not uh, go into that, but uh, that's the basic a, I would say a framework of the, uh, the moral fr framework of the Bhagavad uh, Gita. But then we have another uh, principle. This is the Upanishadic uh, principle of uh, Moksha. And that is a completely uh, different, uh, different idea. That idea doesn't speak about Dharma and uh, humanism and, and uh, prosperity in the world, but that looks at the whole world from a completely different uh, point of view from uh, as the world of samsara. This looks at the world from a rather pessimistic uh, point of view that this uh, world is uh, actually uh, represents a cycle of birth and death called samsara. Uh, this world is considered to be temporary in transit uh, and is not a goal in itself. Uh, and uh, perhaps a, a small quote, having come to me, these great souls do not again undergo uh, rebirth into that transit abode of misery as they have attained the highest perfection. Uh, all the worlds up to Brahma's world are subject to repeated birth, but having once reached me, there is no further uh, rebirth. That is... Uh, of course, 8th <clears throat> chapter, and if you remember the Sanskrit, it's Mahamupetya Punar Janma Dukalayama Shashvatam Napduvanti Mahatmana Samsidim Paramamama and Abrama Bhuvanaloka Punar Avarati Norjuna Mahamupetya Tukuntaya Punar Janma Na Vidyate. And the translation I've already uh, uh, read. So that is uh, a different a world of you all together. And that is also 
a very central, a very central principle in the Bhagavad Gita. It, it, it holds together both the idea of dharma, which is, as I mentioned, humanistic, realistic, aspires for a prosperity in this world, but also it adheres to the Upanishadic idea of a moksha, which sees this world in a completely different, uh, 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 from a, a completely different uh, perspective or a, a vision. So that is a central tension, uh, which is there in the Bhagavad Gita between Dharma and uh, Moksha. And I would argue that the, that the Bhagavad Gita upholds both uh, principles uh, at the same time and uh, reconciles them in a, in a, a various ways, which will come to that uh, later. <coughs> uh, actually, <coughs> sorry, the tension is so clear, so much so that Arjuna is asking actually twice in the text, at the beginning of the third chapter, and then at the beginning of the fifth chapter, uh, Krishna to specify what actually he should do. Should he adhere to his dharma, fakshatriya, and go and fight? Or rather, should he uh, look for enlightenment and renounce fighting? And let me uh, quote, oh, Janardana, if you consider enlightenment to be better than action, why then do you enjoy me to perform this terrible act? Your equivocal-like words confuse my mind. I beg you, make it certain for me of one thing by which I may attain the best. So this is a major uh, tension in the Bhagavad Gita that uh, between that of uh, Dharma working in the world, adhering one's duty and renouncing the world uh, and looking at the world as a, <coughs> as a place of uh, samsara. Then we have the Vedic sacrifices along with their uh, humanistic uh, worldview. And that is, uh, of course, an expansion of the world of uh, Dharma. Uh, and we have to see that uh, the Bhagavad Gita is Vedic. It does adhere to the Veda. As I mentioned, it is Dharmic, and that, and, 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 and that is the same thing as adhering to the Veda, because being Vedic, it also, uh, adhere, it also adheres to the Vedic social system of uh, Varna and Ashrama, which I, I already mentioned. But uh, the main principle here is the sacrificial uh, principle, which uh, is there and is very uh, central to uh, the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita uh, is Vedic, is adhering to uh, these Vedic ideas, to the Vedic sacrifices, uh, and it does uh, assume uh, the, the the three uh, the, the the three worlds uh, <coughs> the uh, the Vedic idea of three worlds and uh, uh, Svarga and Naraka and and so forth. So just to mention that uh, the Vedic the Vedic uh, point of view is also part of uh, the Bhagavad Gita, of course. Then we have uh, the next a component which is very strongly there in the Bhagavad Gita, and that is the yogic component. The Bhagavad Gita is indeed a, a yogic a text. It has a very deep a component of 
uh, yoga. It speaks about yoga, it encourages yoga, uh, it speaks much uh, about, uh, about uh, yoga, and that is very close to the uh, Upanishadic uh, point of view. Of course, we know that uh, yoga metaphysics uh, is dualistic because it speaks about the Purusha and Prakriti, whereas uh, the uh, Vedantic <coughs> or Upanishadic uh, point of view is uh, Advaita, is monistic, uh, uh, looks at the, at, at the, the um, identity of Atman and Brahma in various ways. Of course, I know there's medieval Vedanta, which has different articulation of this uh, identity, whether it's Advaita, Vedanta or Vishishta Advaita Vedanta or Dvaita and so forth. So I know that, but still I'm, I'm, I'm putting this aside and saying that <clears throat> the basic yogic view is a <clears throat> quite a different. I mean, it, it, it's different from the humanistic point of view of uh, Vedic and Dharmic points of view, but it's quite close to the Upanishadic uh, point of view. And uh, basically, it furthers a spiritualistic uh, worldview. The fundamental individual element is the spiritual soul, whether it's the Purusha in yogic terms or Atman in Vedantin terms. And <clears throat> this is covered by various bodies that are not necessarily human, maybe bodies of plants, trees, reptiles, fish, animals, humans, gods, or something else. So. The yogic point of view is indeed based upon the same Upanishadic, you may say, a worldview uh, with this vision of souls encaged in a samsara. Uh, and of course, it has an ethical implication uh, in that it furthers a liberation. Of course, liberation is Kevalya in yogic terms, but I'm not going into that. I'm not comparing Kevalya to Moksha. Let's leave this uh, aside uh, for now. But a very interesting thing is that the yogic ethics are quite different <coughs> from the uh, humanistic uh, ethics of the world of Dharma. They are different because whereas the world of Dharma uh, furthers prosperity as its main uh, ethical principle, the word of yoga is different and it furthers samatva, equanimity in <clears throat> to both happiness and distress as its uh, ideal. So that's another tension in the Bhagavad Gita. What is, what is uh, the ethical idea? Is it actually uh, to prosper in this world or is it actually to be uh, equal-minded to, to to, to experience equanimity and sameness, it towards both happiness and distress. And that is all, this tension is also there in uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Now, the uh, yoga system, they are not only theoretical, not only trying to see reality, to have a darshan, to have a vision, but they also uh, further uh, practice, a practice. And they further uh, abhyasa, constant practice, bairagya, detachment, a struggle uh, with the mind, strengthening the mind, 
how does it say? Yato yato nishchalati manas chanchalam astidam tatos tatas tato niyam yetad atmani evam vasham nayet. That the mind, the manas, is very powerful, and one has to uh, struggle with it and bring it under the control uh, of the self and not give up. So this yogic uh, component in the Bhagavad Gita is also a very, a, a very central and a very, a, a, a very much emphasized uh, in the uh, Bhagavad Gita, clarifying the consciousness, uh, making the consciousness clear, making the consciousness transparent and a restraining the mind, purifying the mind and a practicing a yoga in a various ways. And here's a small quote, casting aside all these desires arising from worldly intentions, you should subdue completely the combined senses through the mind. Little by little should he bring his mind to rest while firmly controlling his consciousness he should fix his mind on the self, contemplating nothing else from whatever and wherever the flickering and steady mind wanders. This I already quote in Sanskrit. It is to be restrained and led back into the control of the self. So this is a, the, a, a, these, these a, a yogic components. But now there's also something very interesting that in the yoga philosophy, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, we have the very famous ladder-like structure, uh, that's the famous yoga ladder. And that ladder uh, speaks about yama uh, and niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Uh, <coughs> yama is of course uh, uh, ethics, ahimsa, nonviolence, satya, uh, that's truth, uh, asteya, non-stealing, brahmacharya, how uh, do uh, say brahmacharya, uh, uh, celibacy, and aparigraha, uh, non-accumulation. And of course, we have a, a niyama, which is a socha, santosha, I mean, a, a, a such a purity, santosha, uh, <clears throat> and that's a, a satisfaction, and tapas, a austerity, svadhyaya, self-learning, or Vedic learning, and ishvara paridhanam, surrender to God, acceptance of God. Uh, and then we have, a, as I mentioned, a, a asana, that's the various postures, famous postures, yogi postures, pranayama, breath control, pratyahara, withdrawing, uh, the senses, detaching them from their sense objects. And uh, after that, harana, preliminary meditation, dhyana, deep meditation, and samadhi, the other uh, state. So that is very important because the Bhagavad Gita also, being a yogic text, has a ladder. And I will come to that soon, to that ladder in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a ladder of karma yoga, which is very much, very much resembles the uh, ladder of the Yoga Sutra, but I'll very soon uh, uh, come uh, to that. But anyhow, that is also important to uh, recognize the Bhagavad Gita's, uh, <coughs> Bhagavad Gita's yogic 
uh, layer or yogic uh, uh, component. Uh, here, let me read uh, a few verses from the sixth chapter. When the consciousness rests peacefully, restrained by the practice of yoga, uh, then can the self see itself directly and thus be satisfied within itself. At that time, he knows infinite bliss experienced by an internal consciousness beyond the senses. Firmly established, he deviates not from the truth. Having attained this, he holds no other acquisition greater and thus situated even grievous misery does not shake him. Let it be known that the dissolution of the deep union with the misery is called yoga and it should be practiced with wholehearted determination. Okay, now we have another component which may be a subcategory of yoga and Sankhya and that is uh, the gunas, the three gunas, sattva, uh, rajas and tamas. That is a very uh, interesting concept. Uh, its sources may be found in the Sankhya Yoga uh, philosophy. And I will not go too much into the description of the gunas, but I would say that in the Bhagavad Gita, there is a very wide uh, a, a presentation of uh, the gunas. I don't know of any other place, any other text which uh, discusses the gunas in such a wide and deep way. We have discussion of the gunas in the 14th, 17th, and the first half of the 18th uh, chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, that discussion has a very, uh, I would say, very uh, uh, wide potential for an application, for, 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 yeah, for applied ethics, really. How exactly, perhaps it, it may be a, a, <clears throat> a subject of a, a different uh, a paper or presentation, but that certainly requires a deeper look and to see how the Bhagavad Gita uh, delineates uh, the gunas, how it describes the gunas and what are the uh, ethical, uh, ethical, uh, I would say, uh, implications of this word of gunas or what, what can one do with the gunas in terms of the philosophy of, uh, of uh, ethics. Then we have the principle of karma, which is of course an Upanishadic uh, principle, uh, basically seeing action as described in the 13th chapter as sowing a seed uh, in the field of the body. The body is uh, considered to be the field and the action is considered to be sowing a seed in that field and that seed fructifies either in this life or the next uh, life. Won't go too much into that, but the Bhagavad Gita is very uh, interested in the idea of action. What is action? Uh, let me read from the fourth chapter. What is action? What is inaction? Even the wise are confused in this matter. Now I shall explain to you the subject matter of action. Having known this, you shall be free from evil. One must know what action is, karma. One must know what improper action is, be karma. And one must know what inaction a karma is, as profound indeed is the course of action. So proper action uh, is performed in accordance to duty or dharma. We return to our original point that Dharma is the framework for all the Bhagavad Gita and improper action would be contrary to Dharmic. 
But then we have another principle, which is action for its own sake, without uh, regard to the fruits. And that is a, uh, a main principle in the Bhagavad Gita, and we will uh, come to that. But in short, karmani eva dikaraste mapaleshu you have a right to perform your dharmic action, but without regards to the fruit, without interest, without attachment to the fruits of action. Uh, never consider yourself to be the doer of action and never be attached to inaction. Uh, okay, the Bhagavad Gita also has an educational doctrine, but I will uh, skip that. I will not go too much uh, uh, into that. Uh, but I will mention the idea of bhakti, and that is a, um, a very important principle which is there in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and it speaks about devotion, devotion to a personal uh, God, uh, to Krishna, the, the, the uh, Lord of the Bhagavad Gita. And that brings everything together, and I will show how, uh, perhaps just as time is running, uh, if one offers me with love and devotion, a fruit, a flower, uh, or a water, uh, or a leaf, uh, I will accept that. And the end of the Bhagavad Gita, the conclusion, uh, always think of me, become my devotee, worship me, and uh, pay your homage unto me, thus you will undoubtedly come to me, I promise you this, as you are dear to me, and Charama Shloka, of course, Sarva Dharman Paritya Jam Amikam Sharanam Vraja Aham from Sarapapebyo, Mokshay Shai Masuchaha, abandon all dharmas, and take refuge in me alone, and I shall release you from all evils, do not fear. So, okay, that's, I think by now, I have more or less uh, tried to, uh, summarize uh, the basic uh, contents uh, of the uh, Bhagavad Gita and try to uh, try to show the uh, complexity in, in okay let me be a little more uh, academic and, and make an argument here that many scholars say that the Bhagavad Gita is a very rich text and it's a text of wisdom you have many wonderful ideas, many wonderful ideas, and all these ideas are very deep and they represent uh, Hinduism and Indian wisdom in a very deep way. However, the critique goes, they are not comp uh, consistent. They don't have a backbone. They are not, you cannot, you cannot uh, bring them together into one doctrine. They are eclectic, kind of many, many, many ideas coming together which are not uh, consistent. So my work, in this book, Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, is to argue for the structure uh, of the uh, Bhagavad Gita, to argue for the structure of the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, please allow me uh, to try to uh, convince you uh, too about, or at least explain what I'm trying to say. So when I, when I uh, look at the Bhagavad Gita, I, you know what? Maybe I'll do it uh, uh, differently. I'll, 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 I'll do it in a different way, yeah. Let me start from here. Uh, now I'm sharing my screen and you should be seeing uh, the slide 
uh, <coughs> with this beautiful house, actually Sheldonian Theater in Oxford, that's the, the house itself. And you have here a three stories, three floors living in the world, world of Dharma, world of yoga and spiritual world. So I hope you're seeing this. And what I'm doing here, I'm looking at the Bhagavad Gita's metaphysics and I'm dividing them into three layers. That is a division into three uh, layers uh, of the Bhagavad Gita. I'm arguing, I'm trying to explain that in my work that uh, the assumptions in terms of ontology and ethics are different. Whereas in the first floor, world of Dharma, you have in ontological terms, you have the human being, a man or a woman, a human being, that is a complete term. And the human being living in the world of Dharma, performing Vedic sacrifices, etc., has his or her a goal a, to be prosperity, to live happily in this world, to be happy, to be healthy, to have good education, good family, good, uh, good life, to have the gods share all the blessings. So the ontology would be that that's a human being living in the world and the ethics would be to prosper, prosperity. That is considered to be a good thing. Now, the world of yoga is different. That is a different understanding of the world that would see the world in a different eyes. It would see it through the world of samsara, as I described before. And the uh, ontological point of view would be different. In this world of yoga, you will not have any more human beings, but rather this is a spiritualistic, a spiritualistic uh, point of view. You have your spirit souls, whether Atman or Purusha, doesn't matter from my point of view, but you have spirit souls being encaged in various forms of bodies. And the ethics here are also different. It's not anymore the ethics of prosperity. What you have here is the ethics of indifference, of equal-minded, samatva. To be a good yogi, you have to be equal-minded in happiness and distress, to regard alike gold and, uh, and metal and, and everything. That, that is, these are the ideas of Bhagavad Gita. So I'm trying to show very, very clearly that there's a difference between these two layers in terms of worldview, in terms of ontology, in terms of ethics. Uh, and then you have the third uh, floor, uh, which is the liberated state, the state of moksha. And that is a whole uh, different state. You don't have so much about this in the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita doesn't speak so much about uh, this uh, uh, third uh, floor, but it speaks a little about that state here and there and a few verses. I'm aware of the medieval polemics, whether it is a spiritual world in terms of Aikunta or it's an impersonal Brahman. I'm aware of the polemics between Shankara and Ramanuja and Madhva. I'm aware of that. 
But to my mind, this is not so important in the Bhagavad Gita, but the world of Moksha is there. So that is the three layers, the three, uh, the three, three stories house to reach. I see the Bhagavad Gita and I, as I see how the layers coexist with each other. Here you see down here, you have the Vedic layer and the Dharma layer. Here you have the Upanishadic and the yoga layer. And here you have the uh, Moksha or Kevalya layer. Now, you may ask, how, the, how do these uh, work together? And uh, here, I am trying to uh, expose, to show the ladder. As I mentioned, there's also a ladder here. This is a traditional ladder. It's not my invention. You can actually find the roots. Uh, I found it in Vishwanath Chakravarti. It was a 18th century a Vaishnav commentator on the Bhagavad Gita. He has this idea. It was developed, but it's a traditional idea, considering the Bhagavad Gita to also have its own ladder. By the way, if you look into the Gita, you find this ladder in the 12th chapter. In the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, you have this ladder actually going from up downwards. But that's at the end of the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. But I also, I look for other places to show it and that you have to go into the text to see how, how it looks like. But they actually see this ladder as a ladder of uh, internal motivation. It's an ethical ladder. The idea is that one performs one's dharma, one performs one's dharma, one adheres to one's dharma, and in adhering to one's dharma, one may purify, sublimize one's motivation. I may perform my dharma out of simple utilitarianism. I may perform my dharma uh, out of deeper uh, dharmic utilitarianism. I may perform my dharma for its own sake action for its own sake, dharma for its own sake, that's karmani eva dikaraste, that 247, very famous verse. I may perform my dharma for the highest good. I may perform my dharma as a practice of yoga. That's a little complicated to see, but it may be a, a practice of yoga. And I may perform my dharma, I, everyone, as a devotional, as an offering of bhakti. So this is the ladder, which is perhaps at the heart of my work, my trying to philosophize the, the, the Bhagavad Gita, and basically uh, saying that there's a structure to the Bhagavad Gita, that the various ideas coexist uh, with each other in a coherent way. There's place for Dharma, for Vedic sacrifice, for yoga, for Upanishadic point of view, for bhakti, it all works together. Where you have this ladder, you see, here's the ladder, simple utilitarianism, dharmic utilitarianism, duty for its own sake, offering the fruits, the supreme good, turning ethical action into yoga and unalloyed spontaneous devotion to, to, to Krishna. And this, this, this corresponds to the flaws which I've described. All these stages are still in the humanistic realm. 
these stages are in the spiritualistic, the yogic realm, the second floor, and this is the final uh, realm uh, of uh, moksha. So that's what I call the uh, three-story house uh, metaphor, dividing the Bhagavad Gita into three layers and showing, highlighting the ladder of karma yoga, similar to the ladder of yoga, Patanjali's uh, uh, ladder of yoga, here you have the ladder of a karma a yoga. I think my, my time is out, but let me just try to show something. I didn't plan to show it, but uh, anyhow, if you were here, it will take me a, a second and I'll try to show one review uh, of my uh, work. I mean, the, the book was published originally in uh, 2000 in uh, uh, 2010, and there were various reviews. So I'd like to uh, show uh, one review, which was uh, published in the Journal of Hindu Studies by, uh, <coughs> by the American philosopher, uh, Carl uh, Olson. So <coughs> I, I guess you now see the screen and I'll, read a little, uh, that's, uh, let's see what he says. says. After all the previous attention devoted to the Bhagavad Gita over the years by scholars and others, it is difficult to imagine that someone could contribute anything new to discussion about the contents of this important text, located within the larger Mahabharata epic. But uh, Idemar Theodore does accomplish the task of throwing new light upon the epic text with his carefully designed book, from Theodore's point of view, the Bhagavad Gita is a coherent theological philosophical treatise that may be firmly unified as a single text because of its conceptual structure, its basic assumptions and its uh, prevailing ideas. In order to demonstrate the unifying structure of the text, the author uses the metaphor of a three-story house that includes the staircase leading upwards and connecting one floor with another. The three floors of the house represents different levels of reality while ascending the staircase stands for a transformational ladder of ethical and spiritual refinement. Uh, okay, I, I, I'll skip that and just go to the end of the, uh, 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 of the review. Uh, Theodore's studies translation commentary of the Bhagavad Gita is destined to assume an important place in the scholarship devoted to this epic text. This necessarily means that future scholars will have to consider Theodore's study or to be considered deficient in their scholarship. In summary, Theodore gives us his reader much to admire, think about, and appreciate. So uh, I'm, I think I'm on time, it's 40 minutes. I, 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 sh I think I should uh, stop here. And uh, thank you very much. Back to you, Professor Jane. Thank you, Professor. <clears throat> Professor Theodore. Thank you for the enlight this enlightening talk. We have 70 participants, and uh, I think we all learned a lot from you and uh, your insights, your ladder of yoga, uh, your comparison with uh, the similar hierarchy in Yoga Sutra and other philosophical traditions of India. Thank you very much. Let's take some questions, I, 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 I guess. Uh, so the first question is, what are your views on including the principles of the Gita in the Western curriculum? That's the first question. And I don't in Western name. curriculum, uh, yeah. uh, my views are very good. I mean, I, I, first <laughs> of all, I teach the Gita myself. I think, I think what we're having 
is a various ways the Gita is perceived. One way is uh, within Hindu studies, people study Hindu studies, and then the category is a religious studies, studying world religions. Hinduism is, of course, a world religion. And within Hinduism, studying the Gita as a Hindu text. That is one point of view. Another point of view is studying the Bhagavad Gita uh, in, in a relation to uh, Indian nationality, Indian, uh, the Indian national uh, movement. Uh, of course, we also have a chapter in uh, our critical Bhagavad Gita critical introduction on how the Gita was perceived by scholars such as uh, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, uh, Sri Aurobindo, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and that's also a point of view. But there's also, I would say, an interesting field emerging, which is called world philosophy. It's quite new, and not so many works in that world philosophy, but the world philosophy concept does look at the Gita as a world philosophy, something you can read uh, just like uh, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, and other uh, great philosophers. So that is also uh, emerging, and I, of course, very much uh, encourage that. I think the Gita should be also learned uh, as a world philosophy. So basically, I'm saying uh, there are various categories for studying the Gita, certainly uh, in terms of studying world religions and Hinduism, uh, certainly uh, as part of studying uh, Indian history, uh, 19th, 20th century Indian history in the national movement. Uh, but uh, another thing which is very promising is studying the Bhagavad Gita uh, in terms of a world philosophy, uh, in terms of the emerging world philosophy field. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. That I didn't. I also didn't know that it's emerging as a world philosophy, and it should. In high time. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I, 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 I can show you. I can show you a book called Philosophies of Happiness All by right. Diana. You know that by Diana Lobel. Nice. And that okay. was published Thank by you. Columbia University Press in 2016, quite new. Okay. And it's called Philosophies of Happiness. And you have quite a bit there on the Bhagavad Gita. Wonderful. As the yes, word yes. philosophy. It's a wonderful Absolutely. field emerging. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Next question I'm <clears throat> taking from the last question uh, by Professor Meera Chakravarti. Her question is, there seems to be no tension which, which you seem to propose in the Gita's yogic ideology. <clears throat> and the Yoga Sutra, as Gita is a derivative of the main source from the Indian wisdom, there is no tension. I think she asked, actually, yeah, uh, the question is to talk about the yogic ideology or Yoga Sutra, any tension or not within the Gita? That's the question, I think. Well, I would say that the Yoga ideology is very much compatible with the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. Very much compatible. The Bhagavad Gita is very yogic. You have many ideas of you. Actually, it also it, 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 it propounds a karma yoga, karma yoga as perhaps a central doctrine of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and you have also classical yoga, Ashtanga yoga in the sixth chapter. Uh, you have also Jnana yoga. Jnana yoga is also there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but but but. Uh, um, uh, let me say that karma yoga, let, let's try to understand this term karma yoga. It has two components. One is karma and one is yoga. Now the karma, what is this karma? The karma is if you like Vedic karma or if you like Dharma. Actually, I gave a paper 
in the uh, 18th Sanskrit uh, conference in Vancouver. I think you were there also, I'm not sure. No. You were there? You no. know, that was in 2018. And I gave a paper uh, arguing that karma yoga is dharma yoga. Oh, okay. you see my yes. point. So yes. that karma, which karma yoga speaks about is actually karma or action according to dharma. Mm -hmm. So that is very much the Bhagavad Gita, karma yoga, mm -hmm. which means turning the uh, Vedic dharma into yoga. Mm -hmm. We have to see this, and that is perhaps one of the main points of the Bhagavad Gita. And that is how maybe that, that is the, the great innovation of the Bhagavad Gita. Because mm -hmm. uh, when we talk of Vedic dharma, we, 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 we talk uh, in terms of svarga, performing sacrifice and going to Svarga. Yeah. And perhaps the innovation of the Bhagavad Gita is taking this dharmic action and turning it into a form of yoga. Mind control, restraint. It's actually be ascending ladder of karma yoga. So yes, the, the Bhagavad Gita is very much yogic and is very much compatible yeah. with the Yoga Sutra. Thank you, great. Um, just before the webinar started, you were talking about something, and that's the there is a very question relevant to very very relevant question that you were already sharing with me before the webinar started. This is from Stuti Mathur. The question is: Do you believe that religious scriptures all around the world, from many different countries and cultures, have sense of commonality at any point of its deliverance? And what does this tell us about the belief in these scriptures? The common elements between different scriptures and cultures. Okay, so I, I would say that I I actually published both a, a chapter in an Indian publication, and also in my book in the edited volume, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, a, a critical introduction, uh, arguing that the Bhagavad Gita can serve as the major, uh, as the major Indian book. Indian book, and also I gave a lecture, uh, I think, in 2019 in Hong Kong, in the, in the University of Hong Kong, <laughs> arguing more or less the same that the Bhagavad Gita can serve as the Asian book, not only I mean <laughs> Indian, plus uh, two Chinese religions, uh, 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 Confucianism and 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 uh, Taoism. So that would make it Asian and not only Indian. Mm -hmm. But basically, I would say that uh, various religions, they're not all the same. I don't think all religions are the same. Uh, I think various religions uh, are uh, adopted to people in uh, different times and places. Now, you may say that I implicitly speaking Gita because I'm speaking about the avatar doctrine that there are various avatars in the world. You may say that I'm implicitly uh, a Baha'i, which is very close to the Gita saying that various uh, messengers are coming and offering various um, uh, religious uh, systems which are suitable to a certain time of place. Uh, you may also say that I'm talking in terms of the gunas and saying that various peoples have religions according to their gunas. Uh, if you see my point, that these people have more sattvic religion, these people are more rajasic, I can see all that. So I, this is all saying the same thing from various point of view. I very much believe in the power of religion, in the good power of religion, in the good sense of furthering ethics 
and uh, 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 humanity, uh, humaneness, Ren, the Chinese uh, Ren, mm. and so forth. Uh, and I'm very much a furthering unity between religions. But again, I, I'm not saying that all religions are the same. I'm not saying that. Uh, various religions, they uh, offer various ideas. They have the, uh, the different uh, emphases, emphasis, emphasis, emphasizing different things. Uh, just take two uh, Indian uh, non-Vedic religions, Jainism and Buddhism. Uh, both coming from, to my point of view, from, uh, from the yogic uh, tradition, but one uh, emphasizing wisdom, Buddhism, uh, the middle path, uh, wisdom, and the other one, Jainism, uh, <laughs> emphasizing ecology, you know, you're writing about these things, uh, and austerity, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, a different point of view. Uh, anyhow, so, so, so our, are Buddhism and Jainism the same? No, they emphasize different things. They're coming from the same tradition, but they have different uh, emphasis. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what I'm saying is that various religions, they have different ideas. Uh, but I'm also saying that the Gita is very, very rich in its ideas. I'm saying that the Gita is compatible with many religions. And as I mentioned my publication, earlier, that publication uh, says uh, how the Gita is compatible with uh, Buddhism uh, and with Jainism and with Sikhism and with Christianity and mm. with Islam, Islam too, and with Judaism and with the Baha'i religion and with Zoroastrianism. And to each and every religion, I bring a few verses which I argue are compatible, that the people adhering to that religion would be very happy about them and feel. And, you know, I have to say something about it, about the Gita as the all Indian book. Uh, you mentioned that that uh, that um, conference uh, before, when we had our uh, informal talk, uh, that conference uh, in 2005 in the Developing uh, Society Center in Delhi, uh, back then, like 2005. So I gave my paper at uh, that conference on the Bhagavad Gita. And at the end of the paper, uh, a professor came to me and said, that was a very good lecture. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I'm very happy with you. So I said, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And he said, you'll be surprised. I am not a Hindu. I'm a Muslim. He says, I'm a Muslim professor. Uh, and I teach a Muslim history of a 13th century uh, uh, Delhi Sultanate. That's my profession, he says. He says, but, he says, the Gita is our national book, he said. <laughs> that was very inspiring. He yes. said, I'm proud of you and I'm proud of the Gita. He says, I'm not Hindu, it's not my point of view, but I see the Gita as a national heritage mm -hmm. and uh, I'm very happy uh, to see you giving a good uh, Gita talk. So that, that was a turning point mm -hmm. for me. I said, wow, the Gita mm -hmm. goes beyond uh, Hinduism by, by own uh, sector, you can say, or uh, mm -hmm. identity, it actually, it's much larger. And here some people are seeing that. So uh, that was very uh, inspirational for me. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'll take next next question. I'm taking from Dhani Kothari. And she has asked, do you think, do you think the principle of ethics will change in the current situation of COVID-19? And how will the Bhagavad Gita guide us? Dhani Kothari. 
Can, can you can you uh, uh, return the question? I, I didn't sure. get it exactly. Sorry, I'll speak slowly. Do you think the principles of ethics will change okay. in the current situation of COVID-19? And how will the Bhagavad Gita guide us in this pandemic? Oh, okay, okay, I, I get it. Uh, COVID-19, will that change the world? Uh, hopefully in a good way. Uh, hopefully, hopefully that will uh, make us less uh, of a consumerist, uh, more careful about our behavior, uh, more um, more careful about the environment. Uh, in many ways, I, I, I hope I hope uh, that will make us uh, less industrial and more spiritual. So that's my hope. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's my hope. If I think it will happen, I'm not sure. To be honest, I don't know. But then you add, then the question is, how will the principles of the Gita uh, guide us? So actually, I have a paper which is to be published uh, soon in a publication uh, by Dell University. And that I argue there that the Gita has a potential for a, a global ethics. And basically my argument goes that the current ethical systems, they uh, spring or emerge from external categories, uh, whether these are uh, social identities, national identities, uh, religious uh, systems, uh, which try to enforce uh, the ethics on the human being. And I'm saying that uh, as we enter into a post-global uh, or, or a global era of post-modernity, -modern these systems are becoming weaker and weaker because our identities are becoming weaker and weaker. Am I Indian or American? For example, I may live here and work there. What am I exactly? And am I a Jew? or American, or what comes first? I mean, people have these questions. Uh, people say, I'm Jewish, I'm American, I'm a, I don't know, Republican or a Democrat, whatever. I'm, I'm saying that the questions of complexity, uh, identity becomes more and more uh, complex. Mm -hmm. And the Gita's ethical system springs from internal categories. That's another argument, which I didn't develop here, that Dharma, is based upon one's gunas. That's very much Bhagavad Gita. If my guna, my gunas, my constitution of my gunas is a certain, a certain constitution that defines my dharmic duty or my ethics. And because it is uh, internal and not external, it's not imposed from without, it's internal, springs from my own nature, I argue that it will be more suitable uh, for a postmodern globalization. Mm -hmm. That the Gita is in many ways, I think, immune or more immune to a postmodernity than uh, other systems. In other words, in postmodernity, we have a clashing of ethics. It's not a problem of postmodernity. We have all the world coming together, but everyone has a different ethical uh, system. You have your system, I have my system. They have their system, who, who's right? 
and these are uh, conflicting. It's so part of the part of the uh, the problem of uh, globalization that there's no uh, agreement on global ethics. We have global commerce. That's not a problem. Everyone sells and buys in all directions. We have a global diplomacy, but ethics we don't have. There's no no system of global ethics. What is right? What is wrong? And I think that the Bhagavad Gita has uh, this potential uh, actually uh, to unify East and West. That's what I really think. I think that the Gita uh, is also compatible with uh, Eastern systems. And as you mentioned before, I did do a comparative work on Indian and Chinese mm -hmm. philosophy and religion. And actually I gave a, a I mean, I, 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 I chaired a session at the AR I think was San Francisco 2012 uh, and presented the Gita uh, in dialogue with Chinese thought. And uh, Lori Patton was the respondent. Mm -hmm. And she said, she said uh, it was a very interesting reading of the Bhagavad Gita. I tried to emphasize the Gita's natural sides, not the religious sides, because that's mm -hmm. the Chinese philosophy. I tried to show the gunas as compatible with yin Young and Dao. That's another story. It's there in my book, a Brahman and Dao. And mm -hmm. I also said that the Gita is compatible with Western uh, ideology uh, and with Western uh, religiosity. And mm -hmm. that's where the idea of uh, divinity is emphasized. And uh, anyhow, it was a nice discussion with Professor Laurie Patton about it. Mm -hmm. Basically, I said that the Gita came West, uh, 19th century and so forth. And mm -hmm. before that, I know Charles Wilkins, 1785, but anyhow, and the Western parts were emphasized that Krishna is God like Christ and so forth. But if you take the Gita eastwards, then you'll mm -hmm. have other parts being emphasized, which are the natural parts. Mm -hmm. And also the Vedic parts, which are compatible with, with the Confucian parts. But that's another story. I have a paper there in that book, a chapter. So basically I see the Gita as a potential of uh, bringing together East and West. East means Chinese civilization, Western civilization, and the Gita having a, being compatible with both, both sides. It's theistic, there's divinity, it's monotheistic, it's mm. also natural. Uh, anyhow, it's, uh, it's all there. If you're interested, I have <laughs> written about it, yeah. Right. Thank you. Next question I'll take from Pushan Kumar Chaudhary. And he has asked, uh, the practical application of teaching of the Gita in an individual and universal level. Okay, let me go slow. I will. The practical application of teaching of the Bhagavad Gita in an individual and universal level. Well, uh, individual level, I would say that the Bhagavad Gita furthers the dharma. It makes one a dharmic person. Dharmic person means moral. Moral, serving other people, serving the environment, it adheres to dharma, responsible and dharmic. And it has the spiritual path, uh, the spiritual path is part of it. One adheres to dharma and makes spiritual progress, if you like, through one's dharma. One sublimates one's, uh, one's uh, motives, one's become more spiritual, but remains dharmic. That is the whole point of the Bhagavad Gita. Even when one is liberated, still one is dharmic. There's a discussion in the third chapter. Krishna says, 
look at myself, he says, I'm liberated. I don't need to follow Dharma, but still I, worship, I, I follow Dharma to give example. So the Bhagavad Gita is Dharmic all over. And at the same time, it uh, furthers uh, a progress, spiritual progress uh, while following Dharma. So that will be individual. As far as a global or wider application, uh, I have some ideas there, I have to say. I have some ideas which were never uh, uh, realized uh, practically, just ideas. But uh, I'm trying to further the idea of, um, I call it neo-Brahminism or neo-Dharma, neo basically trying to look at modern society and equating uh, the business the business sector uh, with uh, Vaishyas, commerce, the government and political sector with Kshatriyas, and the education sector uh, with Brahmins. Basically, I, I, I'm trying to actually further the idea of kind of forming some kind of a neo-Brahminism, which will lead society in a spiritual way. How to do it, it's quite complicated because it's very difficult to uh, uh, promote Brahminism these days. Uh, and Western thought is very much hierarchical in, uh, in that government is above uh, education. Mm. If you see my point, it goes upside down. To, yes. to my point of view, uh, education should be about, above government. Mm. And the, the, yeah. the, the, the present system says that teachers are employed by the government. The government is the employer of the teachers. So it's difficult to, uh, to actually uh, uh, apply these points of view, but I'm trying in various ways. So I would say that on the social level, I have some ideas, but these were never realized. It's basically, mm -hmm. it's my ideas, but it was never practiced uh, really. Uh, yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you. Next question I'll take uh, from an anonymous attendee. And uh, the person is asking, thanks for the fascinating session. My question is about the general perception that people focus more on renunciation of worldly affair and move towards the total avoidance of action as a path of moksha, while carefully while, while careful study of Gita is opposite of it, but general perception prevails. What are what are your thoughts on it? Action versus well, versus it's, a, a, it's a it's a very good question, a yes. very good question, and as I mentioned before, uh, when I started my talk that there is a great tension between work in this world, between dharma and moksha. Uh, and that's a great tension. And uh, <clears throat> you may even say that this is the big story of the Indian philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. Indian philosophy was Vedic and humanistic. And then you had uh, the renunciate, the shramanas, you had the Upanishads, you had yoga, and you had renunciation, and you had the Nastikas, Buddhists, and Jains. And, talking about renunciation. And what was the Bhagavad Gita solution? The Bhagavad Gita reconciled mm. the two ideas. And how did the Bhagavad Gita do that? It offered action and renunciation at the same time. And mm. where's the renunciation? The renunciation is that of the fruits of action, not of action, mm. but the fruits of action. This is yes. the great uh, innovation of the Bhagavad Gita. Renounce the fruit within action, that's the big thing. Mm -hmm. And that is why the Bhagavad Gita has occupied such an important place in the uh, uh, Indian history, because it reconciled 
these two uh, principles. Act in the world and renounce, not the act, not the dharma, renounce the fruits of action. All right, thank you. Great. Uh, next question is simply asking about reincarnation, your views on reincarnation. Reincarnation, Punar Janma. What is the question about reincarnation? Yeah, uh, yeah, just your views on reincarnation, that's all. Uh, what do you think about the idea ah, my of view of reincarnation? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Uh, reincarnation is a very deep idea, it's not theoretical. And basically, uh, one has to choose existentially between the idea of reincarnation and not reincarnation. It's two different points of view. We have to say, if, if we are reincarnated, then uh, the whole world looks differently than if we don't uh, think in these uh, terms. Personally, I think in terms of reincarnation. I think this is, makes more sense than uh, the other point of view that this life is, on the, in, is all in all. And I think in terms of my previous life and perhaps future life, uh, I think in these terms. Um, what can I say? I think it's, uh, it's, it makes sense. I think uh, this idea was uh, accepted by uh, many traditional societies. It's not something so, also in Judaism it's there. Uh, mm -hmm. Also in the other, uh, in, in mystical uh, Judaism it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Christianity was very much against this idea uh, and Christianity very much influenced uh, the world against this idea of reincarnation for various uh, reasons, the coming of Christ as a one-time event uh, and so forth. There are very interesting theological discussions about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an open issue, but I think that ethically uh, the, re the, 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 the implications of reincarnation are also much more uh, <clears throat> responsible, I would say, and ethical, uh, and I very much would like to uh, further uh, ethics, basically Jain and Hindu, environmental ethics, based upon reincarnation, yeah, uh, the sacredness of life, uh, mm -hmm. seeing the trees and environment as, la as, as, as living mm -hmm. in various bodies, respecting them, uh, not as resources, but as living entities, just like we're living entities. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I think that metaphysically, it's interesting. Existentially, it's uplifting. And ethically, it's also very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Next question. Uh, I hope you can still answer some a couple of more questions. This is next one is from Dhruv Lele. The question is, my question is, how can we use Gita in a philosophical way to improve our existing fundamental social structures? Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's, <clears throat> that's what I'm trying to do in life. I'm trying to <laughs> argue for the Bhagavad Gita as applicable uh, scripture. Uh, follow your dharma, uh, do yoga, be spiritual, uh, <clears throat> uh, see the Gita as a way to reconcile religions, try to apply it on the social uh, uh, level. Uh, I'm all for that. I mean, uh, how to practice the Gita, basically perform karma yoga, adhere to dharma and do yoga, basically. Yes. <laughs> you want to do bhakti, worship God, bhakti in various ways, it's all there. I mean, the Gita mm -hmm. is very rich and there's not one way to follow the Gita. Basically one follows 
ideas according to their tendencies. This one can follow this one more, that one more. But basically, the Gita is very rich, and it's very uh, open to to being uh, to applicability. Of course. Okay, thank you. I'll take the next question from Arshika Selvan, and the question is, Professor, you mentioned how Bhagavad Gita is a philosophy and a way of life that can be followed in the 21st century, but isn't chapter 4, verse, verse 13, Chatur Varnya Maya Srishta, Gurna Karma Vibhage Tasya Kartaram Api Marg Vividya Akartam Avayam, a little controversial as it tries to justify the caste system. The well, the uh, okay, caste system. Uh, <clears throat> caste system. See, uh, I, I said it's troublesome. I said that I'm getting into trouble because I support Varna. I said that. I know that. Uh, I'm. I do approve of the philosophical Varna category. That different people have different gunas, mm -hmm. constituting their nature. And I think there's a great ethical uh, potential there that someone who is more sattvic will be more inclined to be a Brahminical or have Brahminical occupation. Someone who's mm -hmm. more adjacic uh, may be more inclined to uh, do Kshatriya uh, or, uh, uh, or Vaishya uh, uh, or Shudra with more Tamasic. It's all there. Uh, I'm aware of the evils of caste. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm aware of that. If I, I'm trying to distance myself from the, uh, I would say, from the history of the last few hundreds of years. Uh, I'm aware of Ramon Roy arguing with Brahmins against Sati. I'm teaching that. Uh, that's not the way I'm going. But I do think that the idea of Varna. Uh, is important, has a great potential, uh, and perhaps it will have to be practiced outside of India because of all the implications it has in the Indian uh, uh, history. I mean, if you speak about Varnas in India, it'd be very, very difficult, uh, considering the Indian history and social implications to further the idea of Brahminism in India. Uh, uh, perhaps it will have to be developed elsewhere just like yoga, yoga was uh, exported to the West. And once it was so successful in the West, it came back to India and embraced by, by Indians. Uh, but it had to go through the West to um, before it will be re-imported, you can see. So maybe also this idea of Varna will have to go westwards, or perhaps eastwards, I'm not sure, but I think westwards uh, and have some people embrace it and see the potential and perhaps rework it, retranslate it in a new way. And if that works, I don't know, that may, it may come back to India in a new form and re-embrace. But I don't know, it's a, it's a long path and I'm not sure it will happen so quickly. I, I mean, I have some ideas there, but it's not easy to see that uh, uh, working. I, I, I can't see it really happening, although I want to see it happening. But, but that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the idea of Varna perhaps would have to be reworked, perhaps outside of India, and then return to India in a new form and be re-examined uh, and perhaps detached from its Indian uh, connotation and, uh, and, and, and context. Oh, yeah. All right, thank you. Next question is, uh, I think will, that will be the last question. Thank you for your time. But the last question is from Professor Ramdas. 
Uh, the question is, uh, where does Bhakti Yoga fit in? The Bhakti Yoga. What is the place of Bhakti Yoga? Bhakti Yoga. Yes. Bhakti Yoga. If you if you examine the structure of the Bhagavad Gita, Bhakti serves as the power to keep everything up. You can see the Bhagavad Gita uh, from two directions, from below and from up. From below, you can see it as ascending the ladder, uh, the ladder, uh, just like the Yaman Yama ladder, climbing the ladder step by step up. But you can also see the Bhagavad Gita as coming from up, that Bhakti pulls, one's, pulls one up. This is the major force uh, coming from upwards and pulling. Bhakti strengthens the whole structure of the Bhagavad Gita and pulls one up through a devotion. So I didn't speak too much about Bhakti, but Bhakti has a very important place in the Bhagavad Gita. And you can see the ladder as a going gradually a from a Karma Yoga to Bhakti Yoga, as simple as that, and from Bhakti Yoga to pure Bhakti, really. All right, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. I think we'll end here. You spoke already for one, uh, 75 minutes. <laughs> and thank you right. for your time, your insights. And I hope everybody learned something new from you. And uh, with that, our sincere thanks. And we hope to invite you again, hopefully in person next time, whenever we can. But for now, Will thank you. And please stay safe in Israel. And we in India, everybody, please stay safe, get vaccinated and protect yourself and your family and friends. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Okay. I will end the Thank session now. Sir. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you.